If you're an adult amateur horse lover who wonders what it takes to make magic with horses, you're in the right place. I'm Paige Lockton, and this is The Magic of Horsecraft. Join me for conversations with wizards in the world of horsecraft about the ingredients needed to build connection with horses and courage in life. Turns out these things are connected. How do I know? <laughs> like most things, I learned the hard way. I lost the magic I once had with horses. In regaining it, I discovered that the elements of connection are learnable. Whether you ride your horses forwards, backwards, or sideways, stick around for stories that show us how we are the same and that anything is possible. Take a chance. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me today. And uh, this is an episode at my kitchen table with my dad, my hero, a veterinarian. And we discuss all kinds of things starting with our lack of ability with technology, but proceeding there to some fun stories about horses and ponies we've had in our lives, including Dale Harvey, a little pony named Nugget, Jody Gray, a power pony that jumped over five foot two. <laughs> we tell stories about going to local fall fairs, about the Godson family that taught me so much and sold me the only horse the Godson family ever sold in their lifetime, <laughs> JC. Oh, we talk about how my disadvantages up here turned into advantages um, in accessing training and um, whether or not natural uh, or, or feel is something that uh, you can learn. Um, I curate some content and today you'll hear me mention the names Warwick Schiller, Dr. Rebecca Bailey, Linda Kohanoff, Carmen Theobald, um, and I think a few others. And so I like to curate really good content. And those are names you should uh, you should know. Oh, Karen Rolf, that was the other name. We're going to talk about um, whether you should bother knowing anything about polyvagal theory and why it was important to me and my why for doing this. And uh, I hope you enjoy it. Give us your feedback, you know. If you do, great. If you don't, let us know and we'll tailor it uh, to suit your feedback. Thanks. Enjoy the day. Enjoy the talk. If you like it, share it. Sharing is caring and I need your help. <laughs> Thanks, guys. So we are Chuck and Paige. <laughs> we talk all things horsecraft and I like to draw, drag the word polyvagal into it. <laughs> We're a father-daughter duo. My dad here is a retired veterinarian. I call him an octo octogenarian veterinarian because I like words. Strikes me in that fast. <laughs> I already got it out slowly once. <laughs> She's calling me worse, so I put up with it. So um, we are here on a bit of a mission, and we're enjoying reconnecting with people, including Dale Harvey, who have reconnected with on multiple levels and my dad was just telling a story we both were about dale we, i was just telling you how wonderful it was to hear from him he's one of the first horsemen from this area to go on and have a career in horsemanship and do very very well at it and uh, it was uh, an honor to hear from him hope you're still there Dale. google him I know him. <laughs> I feel pretty special. <laughs> He's uh, in California now. Um, he grew up as a kid here in the 70s, just ahead of me. And he was a long-legged piece of business. So he outgrew a pony that was both well-trained and a freak of nature and willing. 
And um, I inherited her when I was six, um, largely because my dad, what, well, entirely because my dad was uh, the local vet for about a 300 kilometer radius. And uh, anyone that had a really amazing pony um, wanted the vet to have it and his kid to ride it because they knew it would get well care cared for. So I ended up with this amazing pony as the first upgrade after that fat paint that was foundered. So a horse with founder has sore feet and we had an old sore footed horse on our lawn here when I was a toddler. Yeah, I, I knew he <laughs> was kind of crippled up. But, My parents uh, were busy. The pony hung out with me. <laughs> we're going to point out later that the first thing you need in your first horse, whether an adult getting the first horse or a child, and that is safety. Absolutely the one criteria that you cannot miss, they have to be safe. And old Jigger was safe. And uh, if they're not, um, that's probably going to end your interest in horsemanship. Mm -hmm. If that first one isn't safe. Yeah, I was really lucky. So Nugget had been thoroughly trained and liked her job. Um, was a bit of a handful for me as a six-year-old. Um, but then I had a, a kind of a, I wonder if we can get the film of that, that runaway? With me like a rag doll. Like, or a thousand miles were, an hour. Looks what, like it's sped up, but it's actually just pony gallop. You were six-year-old or <laughs> was Nugget six. was Five the six-year-old. Six. You were the six-year-old, were you? Five or six. I think I it was mean. 1976 my first year on her and in Pony Club, and she took advantage of me. And um, after that, I was competing against the adults and pretty much as tall as them. And I didn't have her for very long before I, I outgrew her at 11, and I got Jody Gray. He was phenomenal. He was also uh, yeah. competing way above his size level. Yeah. Um, so I remember David Godson sitting out here in the rock, and we had uh, Jody Gray run, running loose in the riding ring, and... The grass wasn't very good in the riding ring, so he hopped over the fence and come up on the lawn. And the fence was about three feet, and he just hopped it to get the better grass. And David's eyes kind of popped open, and he started to pay attention to this good little gray horse. Any of you who actually have been here and remember the black um, three and four rail railway tie fencing will attest that it was bigger than a three-foot fence. He jumped a bunch of them. He, Jody Gray, um, when ridden by, um, was it Johnny Battison? That showed him as an, he was a small adult and he rode him in the open classes and puissance up to five foot two was the legend. Oh, I wish, uh, uh, names won't come to me, but that's not who it was. No. Unfortunately, I have Joanne a little know. problem with, yes, it was Joanne. No, before Joanne, there was someone else. So she was a kid and he was well, the adult. Well, there was another lady that bought him off a load of ponies. Uh, out of a load of horses that were on their way to a slaughterhouse. Wasn't that the started it. Hmm? Wasn't that the Pentneys? Uh, I think before Joanne Pentney. Come on, someone's got to help us out here. girl in, in between. It's not our fault, we're old. Uh, took him out of a load that were on the way to a slaughterhouse. And he had a broken splint bone or something and was lame, right? Perhaps. I think uh, that's the story. And he was only on a train then, right? 
Gravity. Come on, someone up there knows. Old, I've got an excuse yeah. for memory. This is how one. I remember it. It's how I'm going to retell it unless somebody corrects me. <laughs> so he, he was a little phenom too and um, liked it for the most part, except for once. So I used to go to all of the local fairs like the, the Nipissing Light Horse Club, Trout Creek Fair, Warren Fall Fair. That was in, that was in the... That was before Father's Day, Warren. Mm-hmm. Um, Burke's Falls, all those ones, Powassan. And um, my pony would compete in the pony classes and then also in the open division. And um, there was one day a couple of fancy girls came from Quebec on fancy horses that were with a lot of money that competed on other circuits that we didn't even know about, you know, that were a lot bigger and fancier than ours over near them and um, I was looking up at them on their big fancy horses with their fancy clothes and they're really shiny and everything and on my little pony with all my friends and um, feeling kind of small about entering the open divisions that day in Burke's Falls and was it Burke's Falls? It was, oh, it was another one, a Zilda, I think. And I mouthed off for maybe the first time ever. I was like, well, my pony belongs here. He can do anything. And I went bragging about my pony because they were looking down on us. And he went in the ring and he wouldn't jump. Fucking jump. (laughs) It's like the only time in my life I rode out the gate past those girls like this. (laughs) My dad said, you've been riding that pony too hard. You turn him out for two weeks. The only reason that pony won't jump if he doesn't like it. So I had to have two weeks off. No jumping. (laughs) No practicing. (laughs) But yeah, he could um, jump up to five foot two. I jumped him over up to four and a half feet, maybe once over four foot nine. Christine Corbiel, my cousin, had him for a couple of years before me. My, My dad really wanted him for me, but I was too small and I still had Nugget. And Christine um, rode him for a year or two. Uh, and then I rode him for a couple of years and he went back to the Pentneys, uh, youngest after, daughter. Yes, that's, we agreed to that when they let us have him. Yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. I don't know, this wasn't the direction I thought we were going to take, but um, then I, I just thought you can't help but mention, I think the only horse in the world that the Godsons ever sold Oh, yeah. If there was another one, someone correct us. But I think there was only one, and I got it. Yeah, and that was your third horse. The horse. fact that it was Peter's horse. Fourth horse. Fourth horse. Peter's horse and not David's horse made it extra specially rideable and soft and buttery because Peter was a perfectionist. He never finished training his horses. He understood that, right? And David was like, woo! <laughs> he got her done. <laughs> And was often in the limelight. Water um, today, it was whiskey <laughs> or rum yesterday with Rob Simpson, and so it's water today. <laughs> but yeah, the next horse was a godson horse, and I think the only one that that family ever sold. When I was 18, I farm sat for them for one winter and um, took care of all their old horses while they went to... Um, uh, Aiken, South Carolina. And they had a 41-year-old, amongst others, but one of them was 41. And she kind of... That's really exceptional, <laughs> but it does happen. She was so spunky, she was an Arabian, and when I got down in the morning, she would be weaving at her door like this. And she'd go out and kind of be like, ooh, 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 ooh
He's amazing. They had their horses um, well in all well into their 30s. Horses can tell the time of day once they've been fed at 9 o'clock for two or three mornings in a row. They learn to expect that. My dad bought a team from the town one time, from the town of Nanton, when they were getting more modernized. Had their uh, Hummer wagon uh, motorized and a few things like that. Dad bought the team. And when it came 12 o'clock, if he was halfway around a pass with a mower on a hayfield, they'd come home for dinner. And the, the same at 6 o'clock at night, actually at 5 o'clock. Dad wanted to work until 6, but the horses wanted to quit at 5. They knew what time it was. <laughs> um, so we are uh, fairly tangential, but I'm going to drag us to a different tangent now if we can, and we'll talk more about some of our old horse stories. I think Hera Shamus should tie in with, because she got that horse Brad's Chimes. Brad's Chimes was also known as JC. That's the godson horse we were talking about. And, um, and there are a bunch of others. Um, I want to say that coming from up here looked like at the time a disadvantage because most of the time I was, I'm riding on the Canadian shield. It's all clay out there. Thankfully we had a sand pit and I could constantly fix footing if I had time and equipment. Clay on rock and yeah. rock isn't far down. Yeah, Big boulder right out here going. in our back lawn. <laughs> So um, it meant I had to just try to go ride anywhere and everywhere according to the weather and the best footing I could find to not make my horses lame while I trained them. And they learned to go on anything, anywhere. And I also got to ship all over the province and then eventually North America um, to train with everyone that I ought to train with as opposed to having a trainer next door and going to the occasional clinic, my list of mentors now is as long as my legs. They yeah, go up to my uh, armpits. Keith and I made a conscious decision <laughs> not long. to build an arena, <laughs> both because we did the math and found out you couldn't hardly pay for the lights in an arena, <laughs> 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 let alone the arena itself, and because we felt it was probably better for Paige to go to trainers, then she could see several of them and take the best from, take what worked for her from each trainer. And uh, had we had to bring trainers up here, we might not have got the best ones. The best ones didn't have to leave home. Uh, we did have some really good people. Though. Thanks for fitting me in wherever I ship to, <laughs> man. I followed a lot of people all over North America to train with them. I'd be like, hi, hi, showing up with my mom and my truck and trailer. <laughs> Two horse McBride. <laughs> McBride trailers. <laughs> now sponsoring the next session. <laughs> anyway, she got a, a broader education mm. that way and a, a wider range of uh, opinion. Uh, to work from. She would come home from some of these clinics and uh, complain to me that she didn't like what they, what they were teaching her when it didn't suit her. I know you take what works for you from each one of them. They're only giving you what works for them. What they have learned from experience works, works for them. And take what you can from each of them and uh, be yourself. And she would did a damn good job of just that. I had a good filter. I mean, I would come home and go, you know, I was just with this coach and we've been practicing these things and this coach and this one's a this expert, right? Because I would go to dressage and show jumping experts and 
eventing coaches and try to meld everything. And uh, I talked to my dad, you know, and this one says go slow and low. And this one says go forward and up. And like, what am I going to do? And he'd be like, well, you know, you're essentially it always boiled down to when I, when I would ask him that or as a veterinarian in a large area, he saw every kind of horse and horse person and way of handling a horse there is, save maybe one or two. <laughs> um, and they would all say, well, this is how you get a horse to do fill in the blank, right? Forwards, backwards, or sideways, or dance, or something, right? <laughs> like, in the end, he would say, are their horses happy? Like, how can you judge whether or not their methods are good when they're like, my method's the only method. And you got to ask for a canter to transition with this way, with your outside leg back. No, 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 you have to ask for a canter transition with your inside seat bone. No, 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 you have to ask for a canter transition with your inside seat bone, your inside leg at the girth and your outside leg behind the girth and holding. But the, like, come on. <laughs> you can teach it to canter by saying peanut butter if you want to. <laughs> right? They <laughs> Um, that was brought home to me by Nancy Tapley after her experience with the Paralympians. Mm -hmm. And they managed to get classical horse movements and ways of going. They were judged to the same standards for the level of what they could do. And they had to use other ways of asking for things. And um, so we've learned a lot more, I think, since you and I were even working with horses um, about how horses learn and what motivates them and what makes them want to do it. And so what has driven us to put energy and time into um, learning this technology and writing this stuff down and creating these things has been um, some of the points of frustration we've had as we've scratched our head and tried to problem solve something. And I propose a eureka moment and we argue about it all the time. <laughs> so the frustration was particularly as we saw um, rural property use and animal husbandry change from the 80s, the 90s to the 2000s. We saw this big lack where horsemanship or horsecraft isn't passed generation to generation Pony clubs are hardly attended. I don't think there's a light horse club that does clinics anymore. Like these things really shrunk. There was a, a sudden lack of information um, to classical horse knowledge that you need to know to understand them and even take lessons. And in the meantime, a whole population of adult amateurs went, oh my God, I can afford riding lessons now. Who do I choose and how do I do this? And they started showing up lessons in an unregulated industry with a million ways to skin a cat or ride a horse and they wanted to come once a week and have me or someone teach them to do things that were not reasonable expectations based on how they understood horses, their level of balance and core fitness, or and yet we were supposed to make those two things mesh once a week in order to make a living here. And the horses and I decided we didn't want to do that anymore. At pretty much every stable I tried to do it at. So I, I stepped out of 
the writing industry immersed myself in other areas, the energy industry, and have reapproached this from an equine assisted point of view. So the connection, um, there seemed to be, used to come home from lessons and be like, I just I can't teach them to feel, you know, to be soft and the timing's all like, they're like, oh, turn left, turn right. Like, ah, poor horses, dad. Oh my God. You know? He's like, you can't teach feel, feel page, right? Right. Uh, <laughs> there are lots of horse owners out there. There's not a lot of horse stewardship going on or horsemanship. Yeah. Uh, the art of horsemanship is the art of establishing mutually beneficial relationships with horses. Not relationship, relationships. You mm -hmm. shouldn't be able to repeat it. And uh, there are a few people out there that really can establish a mutually beneficial relationship with a horse. And uh, that's where I'm sort of at here. I'm trying to make that more possible. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, Paige and I kind of disagree on, on one point that I don't think you can make everybody into a horseman or that every person can actually uh, do uh, what you need to be able to do to be called a horseman or horse person or horse steward or however you like to word it. Uh, I think there's some nature in that. And I also think that horses are, that horses differ, that they have their own personalities and the human personality and the horse personality can clash. And that what one horse will do for one person, it won't do for another. And I don't think some of that can be taught. I think a lot of that is natural. So here's where I come in because I, I used to have it naturally and I couldn't transmit it and it was like oh I guess you just can't teach feel and I don't want to teach poor horses oh my god lesson horses want to shoot themselves I'm out and then I had an epiphany and the epiphany happened because I lost the magic and I was sort of outed for this what I felt was an entire failure of character because my Previous to this, my facility, my seeming ease for connecting and soothing animals um, was how I was known. I used to soothe animals for my dad while they were being treated. I used to ride traumatized, hot horses and they would relax for me. And now I was, uh, at the time I was outed, we'll say, for having lost this, I found myself at a... Um, four-day workshop in Montana aimed at, way above my pay grade, aimed at psychologists who and psychiatrists and therapists who were working in trauma recovery alongside horses in their practices. And I was like, oh, I want to learn what they're learning. And my friend Carmen gave me enough of a base that I could attend and keep up And um, off and I went. she learned the term. Polyvagal! Polyvagal! And she's been jabbered in my ear ever since. And I think it's... I think it's overdone. Okay, so here's the thing, guys. My dad... Be, 
a horse steward without ever knowing anything about the polyvagal system. So um, part of this, I would say, is that my dad doesn't have access to the internet. And I came home in 2019 going, whoa, polyvagal explains everything. Um, and he was like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. No cowboy ever needed to know how to polyvagal nothing. And in the meantime, please Google work. And that's written as though it's Warwick, but it is pronounced Warwick. Warwick Schiller and Dr. Rebecca Bailey and Carmen Theobald and Linda Kohanov and see if any of them mentioned polyvagal or if my mentor that I came home from training with, so I came home going, this woman's amazing. Her name's Dr. Rebecca Bailey. She's lectured at the Harvard and FBI and been famous for helping famous extreme victims, extreme survivors of trauma. Survivors of extreme trauma? You get the picture. And she said this is really important and why. My dad was like, well, now I just read her book and I can see connections to trauma everywhere. And the kind of talks that I have, I would like to sit at the intersection of um, what is it that allows some of us, no matter how we ride a horse, forwards, backwards, sideways, do we drive it? To be riding it side saddle. I don't care. When you watch someone do it and you go, oh, hey, did you see that? Oh, yeah, they just kind of melted into that horse. That horse did a bunch of stuff and I didn't even see anybody pull or kick or anything. You know, it was so smooth. When we watch that, no matter what the discipline, we want to know what's going on. What do you need to know? Well, if those people didn't understand how a horse thought, they wouldn't know how to react. So that my dad and I have proposed a list of things people have to understand about equine evolution and their history in order to deal with them the right way. So the horses can do what horses are supposed to do and we're not working against their nature. So we're proposing to solve the problem of the average frustrated adult amateur who's like, who do I listen to? And we'll give you a framework. If we don't need to be that expert. You can go learn from some of my Olympic medal winning friends or some Western rainers that like whoever, but they're going to want you to know these things before you show up at their barn, how a horse thinks and why, and it's going to inform your instincts. And I'm going to propose that that missing ingredient that allows people to go the step beyond learning. Cause there are plenty of people I know that have spent everything they have on lessons and training and the best horses and the best equipment. And they're still kind of like, oh, they're frustrated. It's not going so good. It's a little mechanical. There's no magic happening there. And my friends, the pros are constantly I don't think fixing the horses. No matter how much they do about the vagal syndrome, so, it would help them a damn bit. The reason I'm proposing, the reason that many of um, you who are struggling in spite of knowledge um, to connect in spite of lessons and whatnot. Um, it was part of the reason why your instincts and your timing are off is because there is a big problem of um, nervousness and wearing masks and things in our society that horses won't tolerate. So at this polyvagal, this um, workshop about how to curate enough safety and connection 
that in their case, they were talking about um, survivors of trauma. So they were saying, how do we curate a place and a space and a relationship of such safety and connection that a trauma survivor can thrive and move forward? Because if you can't create safety and connection, if they can't trust you, um, Dr. Bailey said, I can't help them then. And here is scientifically behind all the methods we've been teaching. So Dr. Rebecca Bailey and Linda Kahanoff have been for centuries, I think it's almost 30 years now, um, practicing methods that worked anecdotally. And they have since proven them scientifically alongside Stephen Porges's model of polyvagal theory. And that along with a tool that you can wear, which I should have brought, I sometimes have it, it measures the state of nervous system that you're in, whether you're in a state that is calm and present and able to connect with others or fight or flight and other people can feel that or it can actually, this heart math device can actually measure that. So we would just for ease say you're in the red if you're a little like, ee. <laughs> so many of us are going through the world like, eat a little ee, ee. Taking some meds to not be so, going to the barn so we're not so, but we arrive there with some anxiety. And as long as we arrive with anxiety, um, they can feel it. As long as we are wearing a mask, no, I'm fine, and pretending to be something or not, they can feel it. And these women, Linda Kahanoff and Rebecca Bailey, proved it scientifically, anecdotally in their programs. Um, it's part of what informs the Polyvagal Equine Institute, it's what informs Horse Sense North and Carmen Theobald, who's um, trained to do all of their programs. Uh, and when I learned, essentially, that I could, without knowing any more of the names, whether, which nervous system or branch it's from, but that essentially I could hack into my nervous system, and at the point I was at this four-day training, this workshop, my nervous system was in a state of complete disarray. I had a lump growing in my breast that I kept kind of kept bugging me while I was there, while we were doing body scans. I'd be like, well, there's this, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> Diagnostics are booked in September, you know. So that was in the back of my mind. And I was leaving my second bankruptcy <laughs> and a separation and a loss of everything at the same time. So, and I was like, no, hey, I'm fine. Wearing a big mask. Dr. Bailey was like, you're going to be a rock star. I can't wait to work with your group. Oh, I just can't wait, Paige. You're going to be just a rock star with that horse. And when it came down to it, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be amazing. <laughs> Superstar. <laughs> if this is resonating with you and you've ever felt a little lost as you navigate conflicting data from horse pros across the disciplines, all claiming to have their own methods or recipes for making magic with horses, and you want the clarity and confidence to make sense of it all, I have a roadmap for you. Check out our foundation course. Consider it Horsecraft 101, from amateur to magician, making magic with horses. A unique group coaching program with live online support that helps adult amateurs from non-horsey families who are seeking understanding and connection become the best stewards for their horses in nine weeks, without conflicting data, lack of knowledge, or not knowing where to go to for help. So they understand how and why horses think and react the way they do to create a relaxed and confident relationship. If you're still on the fence, we have a freebie for you. If you're ready, so are we. 
you can get started at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, take a chance and remember, anything is possible. The horse wouldn't come anywhere near me, ran screaming. And what we learned was that I could hack into what was making that horse run screaming. With a really simple exercise that didn't take more than three to five breaths in the end when we practiced it, um, so less than a minute, I could get myself into the green. This could be measured with a monitor and with the horse going and coming to me anecdotally every time I went from red to green. And I went, okay, people need to know this. And it is also the basis of understanding the nervous system that will allow people to choose between training methods that they maybe don't know about another branch of the nervous system. And that's the one I, I like to spend some time in, that fawn one or freeze mode. So there are some things sold as natural horsemanship methods. Some of them are good, some of them less likely for you to want to do once you know what's happening. <laughs> and some of those methods send a horse to a place where its nervous system goes, okay, here is some unavoidable danger. You're not going to escape this in our history and experience. We suggest you not fight it. So let's send you to a place you can endure it. Click, and you go off into la-la land. So that's overload, it's shutdown, it's freeze mode, it's fawn mode. Um, and we're going to make this as easy for you as possible to endure what humans are going to do to you. Okay, buddy? And that's that nervous system mode. And if you could sniff out what branch of the nervous system is operating while you are using your training methods, you could do just about anything to train a horse. Like teach it to canter from the word peanut butter. <laughs> I'm going to have to go try that now. Um, or, you know, do liberty training or whatever. And you, you will, you'll know whether you're chasing it into a proverbial decision it has to make where it has to join up with its captor because that's all it can see ahead of it, or if it chooses to be with you. Um, so that's why I think it's important to go polyvagal every now and then. And because the things that you need to do to, to know whether you're pushing a horse into a shutdown state or to connect with a horse are the same things that you need to be resilient. They actually coincide. There's a nice intersection there. So... I leave my dad mostly to the, um, what he thinks we need to know about their evolution. And as a scientist, he's taught all this stuff for centuries now. He's really, really old. It's older than he looks even. And so anti-modern uh, <laughs> technology that I've managed to write two books now, and I'm working on the third one, all longhand. Don't even type. Yeah. So that's how... Uh -huh. anti-modern technology I am, and I'll try and keep her toned down as much as possible when she gets too far into it. <laughs> That's what he thinks. Good luck. Um, yeah, so we are catching up, and this course that we've talked about is now morphing. So in the past, I've had advice on how to put a course out in the world, and it wasn't working for... We were, you know, we were going to have to try to cram it into 12 weeks and, and, oh, and it's like a university level course and stuff it down people's throats. And it's like, no, 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 no. It's got to be done differently. This isn't, this isn't working. And I'm reapproaching it with a group called the Red Mare Group really successfully. <laughs> um, so now I've got all the content. I can, 
understand how this can turn into three separate courses and at the end a certificate. And there'll be some courses for, I think, um, things we think course lovers need to understand about the equine species as a prey species and us as predators. What do we need to know about how they think, how they evolved and how to keep them? My dad covers uh, most of that. Then we'll get into the stuff I really love, which is a nervous system section. That'll be phase two. And um, apart from an understanding of it in the first course, uh, in the second course, it'll get dissected and you'll learn heart math methods. I'm a certified heart math practitioner. And um, so particularly if you're a horse person with anxiety or issues connecting with your horse, you can actually use tools and technology that I've adapted for the horse world and horse lovers from the heart math people. And then there'll be one final one to, to wrap it all together, to put this knowledge. So now that we know a species thinks this and it needs this, and now we understand our nervous systems and we're showing up together, our final sort of piece de résistance course will be the third one. And our hope really is to give you a leg up on the area of basic horse stewardship. And like... Uh, I, I wanted to call this a leg up, but Paige thought it had it kind is. of a... It is called a leg up. <laughs> you are going to call it yes. a leg up? Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't like the connotation at one time. Well, I already <laughs> had take the lead. But, you know, he's 83 now, and what he asks for, I give him. Oh, 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 oh. I'm going to cash in on that. Probably should. Feeling pretty soft about that right now. That's why I'm recording them every Sunday because you just never know. My people, <laughs> his people, tend to live to be over a hundred typically. So I mean, but you just never know. You may be stuck with me for another twenty. <laughs> I hope so. So um, in the course, we want to take what frustrated adult amateurs who are wanting to get into this amazing sport that are like, well, what do I need to know, Paige and Chuck? We want to know who you want to talk to. I have a list of resources that is pretty fun and some mentors and friends and peers that have said yes to speaking to me and appearing as guests. And um, some of them include Kim Walness, who's, I mean, these people are world champions and they've overcome so much. Um, I'm still knocking on the doors of Orc Schiller um, and um, Dr. Rebecca Bailey, um, Carmen Theobald will fit me in when she can and uh, at Horse Sense North and she's super busy um, Claire Smith um, my friend from Ottawa and uh, who obtained a PhD post um, catastrophic fall uh, representing our country in my old equestrian sport I don't get to say my in, in eventing <laughs> And uh, Karen Brain, who's been both um, national team member in three-day eventing and a Paralympian and a medalist, um, is also has also agreed to speak to me. Did she break her back with a horse ball? It was sure did. Yeah. Yep. And um, and some others. We're going to cover um, topics about sort of at the intersection of horses and resilience and what you need to know and um, 
fear and overcoming things and connection and what does it take to have what my dad defines um, as, you know, the, the best horse craft, which is to have a mutually beneficial relationship. Um, Carmen Theobald runs programs that we facilitate where people have experiences with the horses that feel like they define mutual respect and you get to know what mutual respect feels like and what um, boundaries feel like. And I've asked Carmen for some help in that, um, in that she has a method in particular that she has learned that we practice, that we teach over and over again. And um, when we have time, there will be some resources for people who are in the course from the best at finding ethical ways to create boundaries with horses. Those the old methods so much that we used to see. Hey, we're spending quite a bit of time telling people what we're going to do. When are we going to start doing something? Well, uh, <laughs> So I'm going to, by the 15th, have something that you can buy in terms of, you can buy it for a horse lover as a gift certificate for Christmas. And then the first lesson day of the first six-week course is Sunday, the 15th of January. Um, and then we'll start doing this live as well as providing some written handouts for you to take home. Um, and um, it's our uh, beta program. So... There will be um, some expectation of um, reduced fee in exchange for feedback and interaction in the creating of the first course, which will be something ongoing, um, and it will be our base course. So what we think in these six weeks, horses and humans both need to understand about each other to coexist as a species um, is our first six-week course starting January 15th. Um, by then, I will have figured out how to do a proper podcast and have my stuff uploaded. Um, I'm recording everything for posterity. And I have a super secret! There could be, in um, our future, you gotta hang in there, you know, another year or so, because there could be a documentary in our future. And I won't let any more details out of the bag, other than there was a very wonderful conversation about a documentary that would cover the history of horse-human connection, and at the heart of it, what... Um, our take from generations of uh, horse people, including the stakeholders um, like I've interviewed before and plan to interview for future podcasts with those kind of voices at the table. Um, and I think it could be amazing. So stay tuned. You'll find out more about that. Um, was there anything this week that you wanted to cover? Last week, we we said my dad's number two most important thing. So his first most important thing, he thinks that muggles, non-magical horse people, need to know about horses. The first thing was based on mobility or their instinct to flee. They needed as much access to freedom of movement. And keeping that in mind, we developed our first principle of horsemanship never holler woe in a tight spot and then we talked about uh, 
herding instinct and the fact that horses, um, the, the handling of horses greatly depends upon an understanding that basically they are a herd animal. Right along with that, I think we should talk about pecking orders in horses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called a pecking order because it's common in chickens and was recognized in poultry. Uh, but it also happens in horses. There's a, a, an unspoken hierarchy among any group of horses where one will be at the top of the pecking order and another one will be at the bottom. And it doesn't seem to have anything to do with size. doesn't seem to be the uh, meanest, uh, roughest horse that's at the top of the pecking order. Otherwise, the stallion that's uh, with a herd would probably be at that, but he's not necessarily at the top of the pecking order. Uh, and in one case, um, in, in the area here, um, it was fatal to a horse to be at the bottom of the pecking order. People that uh, had really good intentions bought a little place, had some friends bring some horses to board at their place, but they, like most people with horses, had to work out to pay for them. So they would feed the horses outside. That was good. I, I liked that. Uh, hay and, uh, hay, the um, hay ration outside when they went to work in the morning, they, they put out enough hay for all the horses. And uh, when they got back in the winter, at least it would be after dark. Uh, so they might um, not notice whether the hay was all gone or if they'd all shared it or, or what. The bottom horse on that peck, in the pecking order on that farm died of starvation. Uh, and I autopsied the horse and that's all I could find. The, the, the primary sign of starvation is uh, lack of fat around the kidney. The last body fat to go and be burned by the horse is the body fat around the kidney. And when I determined it was starvation, I really shocked these good people. They were sort of friends, and and certainly your enemies are not clients of yours, so you're always friendly with your clientele. It was awful to have to tell them that that horse starved to death, but it starved to death because it wasn't allowed to get at the feed. It was put to the bottom end of the pecking order. They also had a, a shed that the animals could get into in wet or stormy weather. That horse wasn't allowed into the shed, so it was burning more energy than the rest of them. Wasn't allowed to take it in. And uh, by the time I got them calmed down over it, I, th- I think and hope that they understand to this day that I didn't blame them. It was lack of knowledge of, of basic horsemanship, a lack of knowledge what, about what a packing order is, something pretty simple, um, and it had cost that horse its life. That's a dramatic yeah. uh, ex- uh, example, but it, it shows now, how it works. Actually, the uh, smallest horse in that group was ha- kind of a uh, half-bred, half-pony, and half... Uh, half saddle horse, uh, and but it was the smallest of the bunch, and it was the top of the pecking order. Now, um, in the world of um, riding lessons, in a world where big spaces are shrinking, 
the idea of horses being out in a herd is often almost unheard of. And um, here we are on the one hand encouraging it and then showing an extreme example of a risk someone wouldn't want to take by putting them in a herd. And I want to mitigate some arguments against allowing horses to have time outdoors with other members of their species that they get along with and that they can touch um, and encourage them to find ways to get them in small groups, even of even if it's just two or three, so that it's not just over a fence because the difference it makes in their stress levels, in how they work, in their guts, in their health, in everything is tremendous. So in my world, I traveled to all of the major dressage, show jumping, hunter jumper, and eventing barns between Sudbury and Timmins and Florida, <laughs> including Arizona and um, I would find ways at these barns still to get my horses outside. And some of the tricks we found were that if your horse trailered with another horse, um, usually, as long as you made sure they didn't compete for, um, what's the word, not assets, but compete for resources, um, and they didn't threaten each other. They were usually buddies because shipping them is stressful. So at the other end, we would find a couple of horses that got to know each other while they traveled to a training camp or a competition that we could turn out together at the next training camp. And, and, and if you have to turn out horses that don't all get along well together, and that these people that I just talked about that uh, where the horse starved to death, about all you have to do is scatter the feed further so yeah. that even the bottom end of the packing order has a place where they can go by themselves yeah. and still get something to eat. And they're still part of the group, but uh, the, the feed just had to be scattered further. That, that was, was pretty simple, but you had to understand. Even to make a rule so that they can't even really sort of fail in that department is the rule that I was always taught to go by is you did at least one more pile than there were heads of horses. Mm -hmm. And then no matter how much they shuffled each other, a horse knew it could walk away and get a bite. Yeah. Um, so that was how we handled it with herds of horses here with small square bales. I know it's not easy to manage, but there are um, horse... So, so many of the models, and this was pointed out by Karen Rolfe, and that's someone else I would love for you to meet and speak with. So Karen Rolfe is... Um, an FEI level dressage guru who at a certain point went, oh my God, working in the industry as I am is driving me crazy. And she said, that's it. I'm out of here. And Maybe that's what happened to you. It is. It's completely what happened to me. It's where I am. Drove you crazy. It did. The model's broken. So let's remake the model. So she does seminars on that in helping other professionals break the model that says, for our convenience that horses have to be inside and you know well it is convenient for lesson barns and blah 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 and you know that standards are that this is the norm and she said question the norm so Karen Rolfe 
rides um, bareback and bridalists, and she teaches clients of every dif- discipline to do the same. And she does liberty work and Pirelli work and all kinds of stuff in a really joyful, goofy, fun way. And she left the straitjacket world of FEI dressage. And any um, relation to Lady Godiva? I got to meet this lady. And, um, there's a generation gap here. (laughs) It's okay. Some people won't know who that is. Um, so anyway, there are other, there are other ways. She discovered other ways of keeping horses too. And she keeps her horses out in groups, you know, and that's someone that does it at the highest level that earns a living working with humans and horses in a way that she loves. And she goes to bed at night feeling good about and um, she doesn't have to do certain things just to survive, which are things that some of us have accepted in the industry um, that she has questioned. And um, I certainly would like to challenge as well. So I like to bring up stories about Vaughn Jeffries, the New Zealander, and how his horses lived outside even the night before he won the national championships and all his students won all their divisions. <laughs> And that Nick Holmesmith um, pulled his horses out of the field, knocked the burrs off of them, and went to the Olympics. <laughs> you know, that, you know, that might be a bit antiquated, but those were examples of really happy horses. Um, William Micklem um, keeps horses uh, together as opposed to in uh, single boxes. Um, Denny Emerson does. Um, I mean, I could. I don't want to start listing people and have... And, have others' feelings hurt that they were left out. Lots of people are doing it. And um, if you're trying to choose a facility, I suggest um, you look at how much, how can you fulfill that horse's need for socialization within your willingness to drive in your paycheck range and really just do your best to get it outside as much as possible Um, with other horses as much as possible and that ideally when it's in it also can touch another horse and see another horse in the kinds of stalls and setups they have Um, that's been our number three most important rule of horse husbandry never holler whoa next what was the next one herding instinct (laughs) so they well socialization mobility so they want to be forward they want to be outside they want to be in groups Largely. And they have a pecking order. And they have a pecking order. That was, to, yeah. So how to accommodate and manage pecking orders. If you have um, fields without tight corners, so a lot of horse people round them off. And if board fencing is expensive for you, you can run um, electric wire and tape to cut the corners out of your field so nobody gets pinned. Um, plan your gates carefully because that's where they'll hang out if you're late. Um, so that two fields don't crowd up and have a gate on one side and a gate on the other and the field right down the middle because they'll fight over the, like it just creates a disaster zone from experience. Um, And when you do manage resources, try to do your best you can to spread them out. I know that causes wastage, but do your best. Um, You can introduce them to each other across a stall, across a fence, until they quit all the drama and they're not screaming at each other. And then the biggest, most open space, the better, so that nobody feels cornered. 
Um, be there with a bucket of grain just in case you need to intervene and a, a lunge whip just in case you need to intervene because if you need to intervene between horses, it gets fucked up. Yeah. Not a bad <laughs> idea when you're... But hopefully we've avoided that. ...to a corner like this that you put a, a rail across the corner so that the horses can't get squeezed into the corner. The, mm. It rounds it out a little bit. Yeah. It's a good move. It's brutal to see them get pinned and kicked repeatedly. Um, you learn to change your fencing if you witness that once, that's for sure. Um, and uh, if you're really stuck at competitions and stuff, um, you don't want a horse to go from lots of turnout to no turnout at competitions. We used to find paddocks places and... Um, and sneak them, the horses, because our coach said it wasn't allowed. He just lied and did it anyway. <laughs> go, Shalane! Go, Jackie! Turn our horses out. Fuck you! Ha ha ha. We had fun. We kept our horses out as much as possible, the wild Canadian crew. And um, our horses, in general, outperformed some of our more well-heeled, well-educated peers from other parts of the world because our horses were happy and healthy. And that was the secret, I think, to the New Zealanders' success in the 80s and 90s when they won everything. For yeah. like a decade, they never lost anything. Pretty good natural horsemen. Yeah. Horsemen and horsewomen. You're okay. You're all right. Nobody's <laughs> mad at you for saying that, Papa Bear. You're okay. Um... Yeah, I think they uh, their horses were happy and their lungs were healthy and their bodies were agile because they're moving constantly. If you take a horse outside for an hour a day, that's it's it's kind of hard to turn it into an event horse. That's a big ask. Standing still the rest of the time, like that is an extreme example. But if you're going to be asking it to gallop up and down hill and on competition day, maybe in shitty footing in bad weather when they're tired, then you should probably have it live outside on those on some hills. And that's what the New Zealanders did. They'd turn them out on the mountains on purpose. Hmm. I had a New Zealander even put a bunch of rocks around um, his water trough because he had enough time to harden up his horse's feet for this competition that had notoriously bad footing on the roads and tracks. I had a buddy, Don Mulaney, who drove chuck wagons, and his little farm where he kept those chuck wagon horses had a great big hill in the middle of it, a small mountain in the middle of it. It's on the foothills uh, of Alberta, the foothills of the Rockies, and it was approaching a mountain, but it was uh, civilized enough. It was it was there was enough contour to it that he could load the, his feed in a half-ton truck and go around and around the hill and then deposit the feed on top of that little mountain so his horses all had to climb it to eat. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it kept them in better shape. Uh, thinking, was... always thinking. <laughs> That's a common trait between horsemen. So one of the first things that we're going to do in the course, um, I'll get it produced in the next week or so, is create an introduction with a bunch of free material so you can get a sense of what would be involved. And in it is a list of the common traits um, and our principles that we're basing all of our teachings on. And um, are there any others that you wanted to cover before we signed off? Because we only have another couple minutes. No, but out of that list, you don't expect everybody to, to, to check all the boxes. In fact, I don't think you and I would. Uh, <laughs> but you learn to adapt to the areas where... 
you aren't naturally. I, I have a. I'm stubborn. Our family we're all, we're all stubborn, and uh, tempers can be a problem. Uh, you don't get rid of that, but you learn that you have it, and you uh, adapt uh, when you're handling your horses. And before I learned some of my own faults and. Uh, I hurt some horses, and I hope to help you so you don't do the same. Well, funny enough, this was completely not intended, but I just found a polyvagal thread. Oh. And the thread to heart metal. Oh, and I did it. He didn't mean to, I promise. That was not a setup. That was just organic. And that's how this happened. So with um, tempers, which I suffered from greatly, and anybody who worked with me long enough can attest to some explosions, um, Part of the exercises that we do help you avoid them. And they're three to five breaths. They're 30 to seconds to one minute. They're on your feet while you're moving. They're while you're having a conversation. They're while you're in the middle of the shit. Um, and they're quick and easy. They've got easy names and steps. And it brings your old polyvagal system there into line so you don't freak out and scare your horse. Thank you, Papa Bear. You didn't even know you were going to do that. Oh, dear. I've been sucked in again. <sighs> Should we let the good people go? Yeah, let them go. Thanks, Toodle guys. Them. See you next week. I'm hoping by then I'll have some help to get a Zoom and a guest. Leave a comment about a guest you'd like me to invite. I haven't asked anyone yet. They have to be available next week at 2. So, I mean, it's coming up to Christmas. That could limit us. <laughs> but let us know your wish list. Yeah, keep, keep in touch. <laughs> hey, you're still here. Thanks so much for listening. What you think and feel matters. If this resonated with you, please like and share. It truly makes a difference. I encourage you to engage with the content on my Substack account and my socials, all at The Magic of Horsecraft, where you can join the discussion and shape the future shows. Tell me what you want to hear more of or less of, and we'll evolve together as we grow a community of like-minded souls here for the good of the horse. If you're an adult amateur horse lover looking for confidence and clarity in your role of equine steward, check out my course, From Amateur to Magician, Making Magic with Horses, at themagicofhorsecraft.com. Until then, I'm here to remind you of a couple things. One, underneath it all, we all want the same things, to be heard, understood, and accepted for who we are. And two, anything is possible. Take a chance.